Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are arising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. You know, before we move forward into Psalm 3 this morning, I want to take you back a couple of books, actually, to the book of 2 Samuel, where we find the story, among many other stories, but a story about a father and a son uh, whose relationship was not just bad, uh, it was tragically, epically, horribly bad. And I just want to kind of pause and go, maybe some of you can relate to that. But if you think you can relate to it, and perhaps you can, let me give you one difference between your story and the story that I'm referring to here out of 2 Samuel. And the difference is simply this, that the father in the story that I'm talking about here is David, king of Israel, and the son is Absalom, one of the thrones, or one of the heirs to the throne of the king of Israel. And here's the deal, the rupture in their relationship, unlike yours, made the daily papers, guys. Every single day. And not just in their nation, by the way, but in all of the surrounding nations as well. This was front page headline news, and it tore their nation apart. And without getting into all the details about who did what and who said what and who's to blame for what, the bottom line is that their relationship deteriorated to the point where Absalom the son decided to overthrow his father David the king. And by the way, what that would require of him is to put his father to death. So now think about that for a minute from David's perspective. His son so hates him that he wants to see him dead and or his son so desires what he possesses. And he loves what he possesses more than he does his own father. Therefore, he's willing to kill him to get it. Any way you look at that, it doesn't work well, does it? It's painful. And Absalom is an incredibly shrewd and an incredibly patient man. The first thing Absalom does when he decides, okay, I'm going to do this, is he goes out and he finds the greatest chariot maker in the land. And he says, I want you to make the most amazing, the most incredible, the most, you know, like gold, the most regal, the most king-like chariot that you can possibly construct. And so this guy does. And then Absalom attaches that to this team of beautiful horses. And then Absalom takes 50 guys who are all loyal to him. And he dresses them all up, you know, like military guys. Very king-like, don't you think? And he has these 50 guys after the fashion of the kings of the ancient Near East run in front of the horses and for four years each day those guys would run and Absalom would ride in his chariot with his driver looking all king-like going all through the city of Jerusalem again and again and again and again and doing what implanting into the minds of the people of Israel the image of him as their king and then every day after he made a couple of circuits around the city, he would stop at the city gate and he talked to the people who were coming into the city of Jerusalem from all over the nation. 
Some had walked hours, some had walked days, some had walked weeks. And he'd say, well, why are you here and what's going on? And a lot of these people, as he would discover, and he knew this, were coming to the city of Jerusalem to see the king. And they wanted to see the king because they wanted justice. And so they had felt so wronged and they were so inflamed for justice that they were going all the way to the Supreme Court who was one guy, David. And that's what drove them to come to the city in Absalom seized upon an apparent governmental inefficiency in the government of David, something that was incredibly frustrating to his people. And the inefficiency was such that you could make that trip and you might not even get to see the king. Very tough to get a hearing with the king. And so Absalom would say, well, where are you from? And they'd say, oh, well, I'm from, you know, Dan up in the north. Wow, man, you came a long way. Well, why, why are you here? Well, I'm here for justice. I'm here to see the king. Oh, really? Well, tell me a little bit about your case. Man, I understand why you feel like you need justice. That's an incredible case. You've got a great case. You know what? You've got no shot at seeing my dad. Zero. There is no justice for you. And then he'd say something like, oh, that I was the judge of this land, meaning that I was the king. Because then you'd get justice and they would fall and pay homage, you know, to, to Absalom because he's very kingly. And he would reach down and in a feigned humility, pick them up off of the ground and he'd kiss them on either cheek in the manner of a Middle Easterner and he'd embrace them as his brother and he'd send them away in love with who? Because it sure isn't David. In love with him. And after four years of this, we read that he stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, which means that not only does David have a son who so hates him and or so desires everything that he possesses, that he's out to kill him, but then in addition to that, that same son has stolen away the hearts of most of the people that are David's citizens. Most of the army that's in David's army. Most of the leaders most of the elders, as we're going to see, even one of his most intimate advisors, in fact, the number one counselor to the king. That is a bad day at the office. That is a horrible family situation. And in fact, as you look at the story, Absalom goes on and he proclaims himself to be king and he has the word spread throughout Israel. And all of these people gather for Absalom. They become a part of his army and his army and Absalom begin to march now in the city of Jerusalem. And David hears word because all of this comes crashing in on him in one day. He hears word that all of this has happened and all of the dots are connected in his mind and he realized, I need to get out of here. And so he flees the city of Jerusalem and the people who are loyal to him leave with him. And when you read the list, it's not a lot, and it's mostly non-Jews, or so it seems. Carathites, Pelathites, Gittites, all of these foreigners who had formed alliances with David and formed loyalties with David. And my goodness, they're more loyal, it seems anyway, than a lot, for sure, of the people of Israel. And he leaves the city as Absalom approaches with his head bowed and covered in dust and ashes and sign of mourning in that culture, weeping as he goes. Barefoot, the king, a sign of poverty and humiliation. And he heads out into the wilderness, which these people all understood was a sign of cursing. You see, biblically speaking, to possess the promised land was a sign of God's blessing, but to be dispossessed of the promised land and driven out into the wilderness 
was a sign of God's cursing. And as he's walking with his little band of folks who are loyal enough to go with him and declare openly who they're for in this war, as he's walking down this road, he walks by this ridge and one of his, one of his old rivals is standing up there delighting in all of this and he's grabbing handfuls of dirt and rocks and throwing it down on him as he's going by and calling down curses upon him. And it's so irritating to one of David's guys that he says, listen, would you just please let me go up there and cut his head off? And, and David says, no. He says, if the Lord has told him to curse me, then we shall let him curse me. And what's fascinating about this is that as David leaves the city of Jerusalem, the person that he fears most is actually not his son Absalom, but it's one of his own advisors. It's this man named Ahithophel, who, as you'll see in a second, is a vile and wicked guy, but an absolutely brilliant guy. David and everybody else regarded his counsel as being almost prophetic, meaning almost perfect. He was so good at foreseeing what was coming and planning for what was coming. And David hears that Ahithophel of all people, like if he had to choose one guy not to defect, this would be it. Yeah, okay, so he's defected. He's with Absalom. And David knows in that moment, if Absalom follows Ahithophel's instructions, I'm a dead man and so is everyone around me. And so he prays, oh Lord, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And as soon as he's done praying, a guy named Hushai, another one of his advisors, shows up. And Hushai says, I'm going with you, you know, thank the Lord, somebody's loyal, right? And, and David says, no, 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 here's how you can show your loyalty to me. Go back into the city, hurry, go back up to the palace, wait for Absalom to arrive, and then you tell him and convince him that you're loyal to whoever the king is, and since he's the new king... You're now loyal to him, and here's your job. It's very simple. If Ahithophel says stop, you say go. If he says up, you say down. If he says hot, you say cold. Whatever he says, say the opposite and confound, confuse Absalom. Make the counsel foolishness. And so off goes Hushai, and in comes Absalom. And so the first thing that Absalom does when he rolls into town and sits down in a bloodless coup thus far on the throne is he calls his advisors and he looks at Ahithophel because he's the chief guy and he says all right what should I do next and Ahithophel said well you should do two things so number one your dad has left these concubines these wives of his he's left them behind to take care of the palace here's what you need to do you need to pitch a tent on the roof of the palace and in front of all of Israel you need to take them in one at a time and sleep with every one of them why well, because Absalom, there's this whole group of people who, you know, I mean, all the momentum's with you, buddy, and, and they are very likely to side with you, but they're holding back because they're wondering if you and your dad are going to go to couples counseling and work this thing out. And if they declare for you and then you work things out and your dad becomes king again, dad might not be too happy with them. But if you do this... It's going to send the message to the entire nation that there will not be couples counseling. There is not going to be anything to put this relationship back together again. And since all the momentum is yours, they will feel safe at this point or safer declaring for you than declaring for your dad. So that's the first thing you need to do. The second thing you need to do is give me 12,000 soldiers so that I can go out and crush your dad tonight. 
We need to strike immediately. They're going to be weary. They're going to be tired. They're going to be unsuspecting. I'm going to come upon them. Everyone in his camp knows that he's the only one we're actually after anyway. And when I come in there with the soldiers, surprise attack, all of these people are going to scatter in fear. They're going to leave your dad exposed. I will strike him down. And then you, Absalom, being a merciful Lord, I will in your name grant clemency to everybody who declared themselves loyal to your father and bring them all back as your friends and loyal and grateful, even subjects. What do you think? Absalom said, wow, you know, it's interesting. But there is another counselor. So Hushai, what should I do? And Hushai says, well, Ahithophel is a brilliant man. And I don't remember a time, honestly, when I've ever disagreed with his counsel. But as for his battle plans, at least, I have to tell you, I think it's a terrible idea. And and let me explain why. Because if there's anything that everyone in the entirety of the nation of Israel and beyond knows about your father, it is that he is not a good warrior. He is a great warrior, like unprecedentedly great. He is a brilliant military strategist. And the people that are loyal to him, and who'll die for him, by the way, they will not scatter, are brilliant military strategists. You don't think he's going to see this coming? This is entirely predictable. Incidentally, in case you forgot, your dad is the one who has all of this experience in wilderness warfare. He knows every cave out there. Good grief, he's lived in half of them. He's not going to even be with the camp. He's going to be off safe somewhere. And his guys are going to be waiting for you to come attack like this. And and it's going to be a bloodbath for you. And forgive me, King Absalom, but if there's anything that all of the people of Israel and beyond knows about you, it's that, you know, you've never been in a fight in your life, man. I mean, have you even been in like a thumb fight before? Because, like, do you even know where your sword is, how to attach it to your hip? You are not a warrior. So all of these people who are going, hey, whoa, who should we side with? Listen, when you lose the first battle of the war, they're going to go, up. that's David. He's the warrior. We're going with him. And Absalom says, huh, I think the wisdom of Hushai is better than Ahithophel. Hushai says, yeah, gather up a great army, take your time, lead them yourself into battle, because you can't lose with that many people, and crush them. And Ahithophel says, well, I think that my job here is done. And so he leaves, and he goes home, and he puts his affairs in order, And he kills himself. Why? Because he knows what's going to happen. David is going to dust himself off. He's going to regather his strength. He's going to create his brilliant military strategy. And he is going to whip his son. And that's exactly what does happen. David wins. Absalom dies. David's restored to the throne. But long before the victory comes, in fact, on the morning after David flees, he writes Psalm 3. And I want you to hear the cry of David's heart. And the reason that I want you to hear it is because I think that it's going to resonate with you. I think you'll go, yeah, I can relate to that, even though I'm not a king and I don't have somebody who's trying to kill me. And I, No, seriously. And more than that, I think that David thought that this would resonate with you. And here's why I say that, because Psalm 3 does not begin with verse 1 and it does not end with verse 8. 
It begins with what's called a superscription. That's actually part of the scripture. It's not just something that the editors of the Bible put in there. And the superscription, and Amanda read it, is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. But then it ends with what I'm convinced is part of the superscription, typically at least, of Psalm 4 that's actually the last part of Psalm 3. In other words, it ends with this. For the choir director on stringed instruments. Now, what does that mean and why does it matter? It means that David gets up the morning after he has fled. First night in the wilderness, now he's up. And he writes Psalm 3. He folds it up and he puts it in his pocket. And he goes to war and all that stuff and he prevails and he's restored to the kingdom and all of that. And then he pulls it out of his pocket and he walks down to where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. He finds the choir director the lead worshiper for the people of Israel, and he gives him this song. And he says, listen, I want you to put this in the book of worship for the people of God for all generations. And here's the reason for this. It's not just mine. It's theirs. It is the song of every follower of Jesus who faces an overwhelming foe. And it teaches us how to do that and what to do with all the fears and anxieties and insecurities that go along with it. And the first two words set the tone for the whole psalm. David says this, Psalm 3, verse 1. He says, O Lord, which not only identifies this as a lament psalm, but it also teaches us who to put our hope in, okay, when we're facing an overwhelming foe. In other words, David doesn't say, oh, military advisors, you know, like we say, oh, lawyers, or oh, doctors, or oh, financial advisors, or oh, pastors. Look, it's great to consult with all of those people, to be treated by all of those people, to receive the benefits of the wisdom of all of those people, to be guided by all of that. I get all of that. But what they are are means to an end. They're God's means oftentimes of deliverance in our lives, but, but he's the deliverer. That's the point. Our hope is not in our doctor or our lawyer or our financial advisor. No, our hope is in God who very well may use one of them to bring the deliverance that we're looking to God alone to bring. We've seen that already in this story, you know. Again, he hears, David hears that Ahithophel is with Absalom and immediately goes, oh Lord, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And then immediately Hushai shows up and David says, perhaps this is the answer to this prayer that I just prayed and sends him off to confound that wisdom. But here's what David's not doing. He's not sitting out in the wilderness going, man, I sure hope Hushai stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night because all my hope is in him. It's not in him. His hope is in the Lord. And so David says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Translation, do you see what's going on down here? Because it's not actually looking too good for me. Many are rising against me. And not only that, but many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, why are they saying that? Because they've just watched what happened. He's been dispossessed of the promised land, which is to be blessed by God, right? The promised land and pushed out into the wilderness. It is to be cursed by God. And more than that, they know his life story. That too has made the papers over the years. And here's what they know. They know that David has given reason to God to curse him. They know the story of how he committed adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. They know how he then tried to cover over the pregnancy that resulted from that by murdering her husband. Okay, those are not little things. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, and not only that, 
but many are saying of me. Can you feel the weight of this accusation knowing the guilt? There is no salvation for him in God. Bruce Waltke, who's one of my favorite commentators, definitely favorite for the Psalms and Proverbs, says that virtually every lament psalm contains a complaint that number one, the enemy is too strong, that number two, the psalmist is too weak, and that number three, God is absent. That's something, isn't it? That's how it feels at times, isn't it? And it's what we fear. Why do we fear it? Because we've given him reason to be. We've lived in such a way as to definitely not merit his attention, at least not the kind of attention we want. And yet David cries out, as we'll see in a moment, in confidence. And why does he do that? Because he knew the gospel, which is what we need to know in those moments too, which is that Jesus Christ endured the curse that we deserve so that we might legitimately lay claim to his blessings and his deliverance irrespective of what we've done. That's amazing stuff. So David says again, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But now his focus changes, and with that, everything else changes. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, not just in front of me or behind me or on one side or the other, but all around me. You're a shield about me. You are my glory. You're my source of honor, of dignity, of significance, of identity. And not only that, but the lifter of my head. The turning point in this whole crisis for David is not when Absalom rejects the advice of Ahithophel. It's not when David's armies defeat Absalom's armies. It's not when Absalom is struck down in battle. It's not when David regains the throne. It's right here. The shift is, or the the turning point is when David shifts his attention from the foes and the crisis and the fear and the anxiety and the uncertainty to the one who is his shield, the one who is his protector. And I think it needs to be said even in death, because we do die, don't we? And yet has not Christ suffered and died not only to cover over our shame and to, and, and to cover over all of our failures, but he's risen from the dead as well to defeat death for us also. And in the end, he gives us back even the very lives that we lose. And so there's nothing that anything or that anyone can take from us that is not renewed and regifted to us by Jesus himself. He is our shield, no matter how it ends. And more than that, He is our glory. I'm just going to say it, I think unlike so many of us, and all of us struggle, I think, with this at least, David's honor and dignity and significance and identity was not found, and try to imagine this, in his status and in his power and in his wealth, not just as a regular person, but as king. Man, it takes a healthy ego to not find your significance in that, doesn't it? My goodness or in the loyalty of his subjects, or in the loyalty of the leaders of Israel, or in the loyalty of of his most intimate advisors. It's not found in his reputation for being a virtuous man. It's not found in his ability or reputation for being a good father. I mean, if you just play through that story for a second, you realize that by the time he sits down to write this psalm, David, unlike so many of us, has scandalously and publicly lost every single one of those things, all gone. God is his glory. He's stripped of everything. 
And he says, Lord, there is a glory that is mine, and that glory is yours. It's entirely of, of grace. It's a gift of God. I am a son of the king who is God by faith in Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then lastly, he says, the Lord is also the lifter of his head. And you say, well, what does that mean? Because, you know, as you laid the story out for us, Tom, he was walking down the road and his head is hung low. He's, he's got ashes and some guy's throwing stuff at him and calling down curses. And I mean, how does that work exactly? What does that mean? I think it means that no matter how big you've blown it in life, no matter how publicly, no matter how scandalously, there is one that who can lift you up. And here's why, because Jesus' head hung low in death on the cross, guys, so that through the forgiveness that is found in Him by faith, you and I can hold our heads high no matter what we've done, no matter how scandalous, no matter how public. He is our shield. He is our glory. He is the one who comes along and makes right what we've made wrong, and no one and nothing else can make right but him. But he authentically does that. It's remarkable. And so David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head, to which he adds, and I think this is interesting, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. And what struck me about this is where he's crying aloud to the Lord from, because he's left the city of Jerusalem and he's gone down by the Jordan River just above the Dead Sea, which is physically, literally the lowest place in terms of elevation on the entire face of the planet. Family, we're talking about a low place. Business, we're talking about a low place. Emotion, we're talking about a low place. Even physically, he's in the lowest place on earth. And so from the deepest, darkest pit in every possible sense, he cries out to the Lord. And even though the Lord is on his holy hill in heaven, the highest possible place in every possible sense, he says, he answered me from his holy hill in heaven. And now David gives witness to just how great his confidence is that God's going to deliver him, that God hears him. He talks about how he slept the first night out in the wilderness, having just had all of this crushing stuff come shattering down on him the previous day. And what does he say? He says, I lay down and slept. And when you're sleeping, you're unconscious. When you're sleeping, you are in, in a state of least possible vigilance. Therefore, you're most vulnerable. Unless you have a shield. Unless there's one watching over you. Unless you have a protector. In which case, get some rest. David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. Therefore, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, he cries, and save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. In the Middle East, to be slapped in the face is massively humiliating. He's saying, just like I have been humiliated, O Lord, you will humiliate my humiliators. And you break the teeth of the wicked. He's saying you will defang those who are behaving like a pack of wild dogs and who are seeking to devour me. You will make their bite harmless as it comes to me. Salvation, he says, belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And then he says, for the choir director, on stringed instruments. In other words, after he wrote it, he folded it up. He put it in his pocket. Went to war. 
one was restored, put his hand in his pocket and walked down to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he gave it to the choir director and he said, look, this is not just a song for me. This is a song for every believer in Jesus who faces an overwhelming foe and all the fears and all the anxieties and all the uncertainties and all the sleepless nights that go with that. It teaches us how to face overwhelming foes in faith. And I got to believe that's pretty relevant. That's sort of a helpful thing. So let me ask you, who or what is your overwhelming foe? Thinking that's the easy one. You, you, you dialed that in pretty quickly. But how are you facing your foe? Because the response of faith is to place your hope in God and to cry out to Him for the deliverance that you need and then start looking around actively by faith for the means by which He may, in fact, be trying to deliver you. And then I think it's to face your foe in confidence, knowing that the Lord Himself is your shield and even if you die, He gives you your life back in the end. He's the shield around you not just one place at a time. And the Lord is your glory, stripped of your successes, stripped of your achievements, stripped of your reputation, stripped of your family. You're left with God. And He is your honor. And He is your significance. He is your identity. He is your dignity. And He is the lifter of your head. I love this part of this message. You know, this idea that Jesus' head hung low in death so that every single one who puts their faith in Jesus can hold their head high no matter what we've done. That's awesome. That's an amazing reality. And hey, last point, He hears you even from the deepest pits. So think about that before you come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are not hard of hearing. Uh, you are not um, aloof to our cries. You don't stand away from us that we have given You so many reasons to. But instead, in Jesus who took our curse, You returned to us blessing. In Jesus who was not delivered, instead You deliver us. Lord, the one whose head hung low that we might lift ours high is our champion and is our king. And because of what he's done, you hear our cries and you are indeed our shield and you are indeed our glory and you are the one who alone can lift up our heads and who does. And we praise you for that, Lord. And we pray that those realities might find their way, not just into our minds, but into our hearts. God, that they might transform us. That we might know the freedom and the joy, even in the face of overwhelming foes, of being your sons and daughters by faith. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.